You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, once again, I thank you for your goodness and mercy, and I thank you for this camp meeting, Lord, and the call to ministry that you've given us. Oh, Lord, we want to answer that call. We're, we're wanting to be faithful, and there's so many things that are taking our attention. They're dragging us left and right, and you know, we don't want to be shaken with the wind, Father. We, we want to stand firm in your truth. And so here we are, Lord. We're, we're trying to learn. We're trying to study and prepare and I pray that your, your presence will be here and that you will, you will indeed be, be with us, Lord, that you'll teach us through your spirit. We're asking for your spirit this afternoon. Once again, Father, speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. We all know Matthew chapter 24. It says, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. The disciples are, are walking with Jesus and, and they get to, get to the temple and they, they're looking at the beauty of the temple. And, and, and it, it is a beautiful temple. It's not as beautiful as Solomon's temple was. You remember how, how beautiful that was. They had made so many provisions for that particular temple. And, and you remember after the captivity, they went back and they built the temple. They rebuilt the temple. And the Bible says that, the, that some of the elders, they wept. Why did they weep? Like, oh... Uh, you guys are a little quiet today. Yeah, we, thank you. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like Solomon's temple. That's why it's right after lunch, right? And it's like, oh, man, I just I can't quite think. It, it wasn't like Solomon's temple. It was, the, Solomon's temple was just glorious. They had poured so many riches into Solomon's temple. And yet the Bible says that this new temple was going to be even better. Why? The presence of Jesus was going to be in it. And it wasn't like it was ugly, though, because the, the, the Jews had, had poured a lot of funding and, and, and money into this thing, and Rome itself was proud of it. They had poured all kinds of, of expenses into it. It was, it was one of the wonders of the world. It was a beautiful temple. And the disciples are walking with Jesus, and they're showing him the temple, as if he's not ever seen it before, by the way. But they're showing him the temple, and they're, they're like, look how beautiful this temple is. And, and then Jesus makes this story startling statement. And he said that not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And you can, you can imagine what the disciples are, are thinking to themselves. What, what, could he, what could he possibly mean? Because remember, in the disciples' minds, Jesus is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he's supposed to be taking over. He's supposed to break the yoke from the Romans, and, and they're going to be a great nation once again, and they're just awaiting this, although Jesus has told them so many times that that's not really his mission. That's what's in their minds. One day, don't know when, but one day, he's going to grab the kingdom, he's going to be king, and we're going to be once again at the top of our game. And so when Jesus says, hey, look, not one stone will be left on top of another, they say to themselves, when could that possibly be? It's got to be at the end of the age. And so that's why they ask in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus doesn't, doesn't 
explain himself here. He doesn't say to them, well, you know what, I was, I was talking about the destruction in A.D. 70 when Rome would come. Uh, I wasn't really talking about the end of the age. He doesn't really do that. He kind of goes with it. Now, this is what I call one of the blank moments in Christ's life. One of the blank moments, blank canvas moments of his life. What do I mean with that? There are times in Scripture that Christ is asked open-ended questions. And when he gets to answer an open-ended question, he can say anything he wants to say. It's like a blank canvas. He, 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 can, he can paint the portrait that he wants to paint. He can use whatever color he wants, to, he wants to use. He can use whatever brush strokes and whatever instruments. He can design that in any way he wants to. And Jesus is asked, let us know, tell us, what will be the end? What will it be like? You, you just go from here. We don't know. We're going to sit and you're just going to tell us. And now Jesus gets to tell us the most important things that we need to focus on about the last days. This is extremely important. Blank canvas moments in Christ's life, they are extremely important because now Christ gets to just tell you the way it is. And he starts off. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one, what? Deceives you. And I've just deceived myself. Because I am on the wrong presentation. That was going to work out nice. You were going with it. I was going with it. Actually, what we're talking about today, no. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me just get to the, to the right presentation. Uh, it's got, luckily, it starts the same way. I, <laughs> I had just changed it from the middle on. That would have been disturbing. All right. And Jesus answered them, take heed that no one deceives you. Notice this. Right off the bat, what does he say? The very first thing he says is what? There will be deceptions in the last days. That's what he says right off the bat. This is the first thing that he says. There's going to be deceptions. Are there deceptions today? Yes. Out of the church and in the church, right? I mean, Paul warns us that there would be sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and if you look back at, at Christian history, you all, you'll see that, that the problems of the church have always come from within the church. I, I mean, yeah, we expect problems from outside of the church. That's just expected. Rome had a huge uh, uh, hand in, in crucifying Christ and all of the stuff that happened. We expect that kind of thing. But the reality is that some of the greatest troubles that the church has ever had come from inside the church. Is that true in the Adventist church as well? Absolutely. We're warned about this. We sh it shouldn't catch us by surprise. The Bible tells us that these things are going to happen. There will be great deception in the last days, and we're seeing that every single day. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of what? Wars. Do we have any wars today? Oh, it's, it's been crazy in the last hundred years. The wars that we have fought have been, we've killed more people in the last hundred years than, than in wars than have ever been killed. I mean, this is, this is just the society that we live in. And right now, we, what, what day are we in the Ukrainian war? I mean, 470 something days that this thing has been going on already. See that you are not troubled. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting statement. For all these things must come to, to pass, but the what? The end is not yet. 
It's coming. It's a sign. When we see these things, we need to know that Jesus is at the door. Do you believe that Jesus is at the door today? He is. Absolutely. We're seeing the things that he talked about in Matthew chapter 24. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. We're seeing all of that. We, and we just, we just saw the pestilence thing really. I mean, this, this is close to our hearts, right? How many of you, uh, how many of you enjoyed COVID? I mean, that was a mess. Uh, let, me, let me just take a, a moment to, to talk about to talk about what COVID meant for me. Um, now, you have to understand that I don't have a conspiracy bone in my body. Not one whatsoever. People talk to me about, hey, did you know that the Illuminati was doing this? Or did you know that they're having... They're... Listen, guys, it's all a conspiracy. It's all a conspiracy. Satan is in control and he's been conspiring since the beginning. And if I'm going to chase the, the devil trying to figure out what all he's doing, I'll, I'll never do anything else. What did Christ say, by the way? Christ said, and I, when I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Notice that he never said, when you lift up every conspiracy out there, then I will draw people unto me. He never said that. And, and, and you know why he didn't say that? Because of Genesis chapter 6. And God looked down, he saw that every intent of the heart was evil continually. Our hearts actually resonate with evil. They, they do. And so if, we, if that's what we lift up all the time and that's what we're talking about all the time, it's not like it's going to be shocking to us because our hearts resonate on that stuff. Christ said, and I, when I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. But off of that, let me just get back onto COVID. So um, for me, COVID was a shot across the bow. That's what it was. Back in 9-11, uh, in we all remember that. Before that, we looked at Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13, and we thought, yeah, the Bible says it, but I mean, I don't really see how it's going to happen. I mean, it's just, I, just don't, I just don't see it. And all of a sudden, 911 happens, and everything changes, doesn't it? I mean, I remember walking in the airport, going, going right to the, to the gate with my loved ones, or, or waiting, waiting for the airplane to land, and you, you'd see it pull up, and, and your loved ones would run out. You could just go all the way down there, and as soon as 911 came, everything got shut down. Now you can barely get into the airport if you have a ticket. Yes. Everything sort of changed. And, and, and I remember thinking to myself, man, this is, this is different. I, I, I'm starting to see. I'm starting to see maybe how, how this can play out. But I hadn't quite seen it yet until COVID. And all of a sudden, overnight, the entire world, who is typically fighting with each other and hates each other, all of a sudden, they shut down. The entire world shuts down in just a couple of days. And I thought to myself, Oh, wow. The things can truly happen very quickly. But here's what bothered me the most. You know who else shut down? We did. We did. Now, God said to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And, and lots of preachers will probably argue what that means, but let me tell you what it means for me. A lot of folks are fighting and saying, oh, the government is shutting down the church. And again, I'm not, there's not a conspiracy bone in my body. I worked with those government guys for years. They have a hard time getting out of bed and, and finding their keys. <laughs> Much more trying to, you know, I, anyway. Here, here's, here's, here's the thing for me. 
If we wanted to rule all of the stuff that the church does and, and be able to control that, we should never have asked a, for a king back in Israel's day. We shouldn't. We gave that up. And Jesus said, God said to, to Samuel, give them their king, but tell them what it's going to be like. And they said, give us a king. We, we lost that battle a long, long time ago. We live in a world that is controlled by government. That's the way it is. If the government tells you that you need to close it, you need to close it. Now, if the, if the, if the, if the Bible tells, or the government tells you that you need to break the Ten Commandments, what are you going to do? I'm going to stand up for the Ten Commandments, you know? And though he slay me, still I'll trust in him. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. But if they tell me I've got to close the doors for the, for the, for the church that, uh, that they're allowing me to have, because we don't own anything in this, in this America, do we? You know, you don't, pay, don't pay your taxes for a little while. See what you want. You know, it's, it. but anyway, I, um, I, was, I was in shock because everything closed down, mission closed down, churches closed down, and the thinking was, as soon as this is over, we're going to preach the gospel. Really? 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 Because it's not going to be over. It's not going to be over. Guys, that was just one pestilence. What's the church going to, what are we going to do when there's, when there's two COVIDs or three COVIDs or four or five pandemics happen, happening at the same time? We're told that in the last days, this is going to happen. It's going to be rampant. It, it's coming. We have got to preach the everlasting gospel no matter what happens. No matter what. To the end. To the end. To the end. That just lets us know when we see these things, we know that the time is near. And we've got to ramp up our preaching. Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, all these are the beginning of what? Of sorrows. That's all we saw at COVID. We saw the beginning of sorrows. We ain't seen nothing yet. It's about to hit us, and we've got to be ready as people of God. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 10, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. We're seeing so much hate in our world then many false prophets will rise up and deceive. Here it is again, deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we can talk about that all day long, but uh, that's where we are in America today. When I was in Canada, they, uh, Canadians are funny people. Any Canadians here? <laughs> Canadians are funny people, man. You know, they, they, they still, in some ways, although there are Canadian brothers, they're, they're about as American as, as everybody else is. They, they won't tell you that they are, but they really are. And, you know, they watch uh, American TV. They, you know, they just, and Calgary, Canada is, is just like Denver, Colorado. You, you go from Denver to Calgary and you haven't seen any difference. The people are just about the same. But, uh, but one of the things that they are different at is, is guns. Oh, that, that to me is, is hilarious because you get down there and, and eventually that's what they want to talk about. They're like, so, uh, so everybody, go, everybody owns a gun then, right? I'm like, you, you just got, you, you got to be real careful. You can't, you can't walk the streets in the U.S. because, you know, you get shot. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's, that's not. I remember I was at a church member's uh, house, and, and, and they started this whole thing. It was a group of them. And, and I said, no, no, they, 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 they don't own, not, not everybody owns a gun, but every subdivision is a militia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, mercy. Um, I don't even know how I got there. Oh, grow cold. Here we go. The love of many, 
The love of many will grow cold. Wow, I've just never seen so many mass shootings and and mass killings, and it's just not here in the U.S. It's everywhere, and it doesn't matter if you seem to put laws in because the issue isn't so much the instruments that they use. It's what's going on in their head. The the ability to take somebody's life and not even worry about it. It, It's just growing. We live in a world that is cold. Matthew 24, 13, but he who endures to the what? To the end shall be saved. This is very similar to, to Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And then Jesus made this statement. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be what? Will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then what? Then we, the end will come. Remember, this is a blank canvas moment in Christ's ministry. He gets to tell you anything he wants to tell you. He could have spelled this out any way he wanted to spell it out. He could have told, told you the end is going to be going to come because of, of this or that. Here's, here's the catalyst to the end. And he could have just chosen whatever he wanted to. But he chose one thing. Preached. Now, I was reading through this at, at one point and I thought to myself, you know, there's a whole lot of information. For those of you who are elders or deacons or preaching or, or even none of those, you just want to get up front and preach, uh, let, the, let the pastor knows, no, I know some of, the, some of these churches uh, have districts, have like three, four, five churches, and uh, they'd, they'd love help on the, on the pulpit. But I was looking through this and I thought, there's a whole lot of stuff happening in that verse. There's eight topics in that verse that you can preach on. You can preach on, on Matthew 24, uh, for, I don't know, two months. You got this gospel. What is the gospel? What is, what is the kingdom? What does it mean to preach? What world are we talking about? What does it mean to be a witness? And, and what nations? And what does the end look like? And what does the coming of Christ look like? All of that, you can, you can do an entire series right there. What I want to pr- uh, focus on for just a moment is this right here. Will be will be preached. I just want to focus on that one phrase. In Greek, it's the word kerekthesitai. Gospel of the kingdom will be preached. It's actually that phrase, kerekthesitai. Now, it comes from the root word keruso, and keruso means to proclaim or to preach. And if we have language experts here, it's a verb, future, passive, indicative, third person, singular, finite verb, if you really cared about that. Um, that being, brings back m- bad memories for me as I, as I studied Greek. It just makes me convulse a bit. But the sense of this word is, is to be heralded or, or to be or become known publicly and, and loudly. Remember Daniel chapter, chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 it, it talks about uh, Dan, or Daniel, Daniel wasn't there, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has risen the statue, he's invited all the leaders, they're all in this valley, and there's a herald that cries aloud and gives instruction on what they're supposed to do when they hear the music. They're supposed to bow. This is the sense that we're talking about, to be heralded publicly. Now we see it in Matthew 24, 14. But what's fascinating about this particular word, ketikthesitai, is that it only happens in two places in Scripture, in that form. Keruso, that happens everywhere. We see that to preach all the time. But that form, ketikthesitai, that only happens in one other place other than Matthew 24, 14. 
And it's in the book of Luke. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And so these two words, preached, will be preached, and proclaimed, those are the very same word. That's ketekthesitai in both Mark, uh, Matthew, sorry, and in, in Luke. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means that when Jesus was thinking about what the end would be, what the catalyst would be, this is the concept that he was thinking. This is what he was really thinking about as being a catalyst to the end time. And we can reread Matthew 24, 14 by, by interjecting Luke into it and read it this way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed from the housetops in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's a very specific word. Christ could have used anything he wanted to here. He could have said, we're, we're, going to, we're going to do uh, some kind of ministry outside for, for, uh, for uh, folks that, um, that need their cars washed, and then the end will come. He could have, he could have said that. He could have said, we, we, we need to build uh, porches, and then the end will come. He could, have, he could have said anything. It was his canvas. He can draw on this thing any way he wants to draw on. But what he said was very, very specific, and he even used a very specific word that you really can't find anywhere else. It's proclaimed from the housetops. The end will come when public proclamation happens throughout the entire world. So here's the question. Knowing all of this and knowing that we have been called to preach the everlasting gospel to a world that is dying, have we been good stewards? What do you think? Well, I can just tell you that the fact that we're having another camp meeting is an indictment against us. Because I don't know about you, Michigan's really, really nice, but I'd rather not be here next year. I'd rather not go to another camp meeting. I want to be in the kingdom of heaven. If we're going to go to a camp meeting, let's have a camp meeting in heaven. So I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want? Good news or bad news first? Bad news first? Bad news first? All right. I'm going to give you the good news because my slides are in that order. So I don't have much of a choice. All right. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. John prophetically, through eyes from the Lord, he looks into the future and he sees this. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, Kindred tongue and people. I think I forgot a word there. To every nation, kindred tongue and people. So John prophetically, with a seer's eyes, he gets to see Matthew 24. This is Matthew 24 where Jesus says, and when this gospel is preached to all the world, that's prophetic. And all of a sudden, John sees the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 14, 6. It's going to happen, in other words. We are going to see a people preaching to the entire world. Praise God. Amen. Here's the bad news. Evangelism chapter, uh, verse th uh, page 32 says this. Often we have been told that our cities are to hear the message, but how slow we are to heed the instruction. I saw one standing on a high platform with arms extended. When you think about somebody standing and their arms are extended, who do you think of? She's saying, I saw Christ. I saw one standing on a high platform with arms extended. He turned and pointed in every direction saying, a world perishing in ignorance of God's holy law and, listen closely, Seventh-day Adventists are asleep. He didn't mix any words there, did he? He didn't say Christians. He didn't say the called. 
He didn't say the chosen. He said seventh day. Christ is on a pedestal pointing in all directions saying people perishing in darkness and seventh day Adventists are asleep. The Lord is pleading for laborers. There is a great work to be done. There are conversions to be made that will add to the church such as shall be saved. The deal is that God wants to fill your churches. Right now. Right now. If we have faith, if we are willing to do what God has asked us to do, He will bring people through the doors of our churches. Because the promise is here in Luke chapter 10. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is what? Great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. How many of you this fall are planning to join the conference in these evangelistic meetings? Raise your hand. We have a few. What about the rest of you? How are you going to bring people through the doors of your church if you don't have something to bring them to? Oh, but pastor, we do, we do evangelism all the time. I know, it's because God called us to bring people home. What else are we supposed to be doing, right? Just, just having church? Oh, but if we keep having, having evangelism, people in the community are going to be tired out. They're, they're not going to want to come. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that? That perspective is, is a perspective that has looked at evangelism the wrong way. When we talk about the fact that we're going to wear out the community, either we are just pesky and we're a pain in the butt for the community and we're doing things that we ought not be doing, or we focused on the wrong thing. We believe that it's our job to go find people to come into the church. But it's never been our job to go find people. When I was in law enforcement years ago, I, I, I just, I had a thick skull when I was in law enforcement. I, I, I had a badge, it was shiny, and I, I was a big bad police officer. And, and for me, my district lines meant nothing. I was a police officer, and if you broke the law and it was across the street from where I'm supposed to stop, by golly, you broke the law and I'm taking you to jail. That was my attitude. Got busted on that several times because once I crossed my jurisdiction, I no longer had jurisdiction. We cross into the jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit all the time, trying to do things that He never asked us to do. What God asks us to do is just simply preach. He's got the rest of it. He's taking care of it. He's already out there. You'll probably hear Sean talk about that this weekend. He's already out there moving on souls and working on hearts and minds. It's not like that we go out there and we find people, then we drag them into the church and we say, Hey, God, I need your attention for a minute because I just brought you another one. That's not the way it works. God is working already in the community. He has people, thousands of them, around your churches, and He's convinced them already that they need Jesus, and all we need to do is go find the ones God's already working. That's all. That is the simplicity of evangelism. You knock on the door, and somebody slams the door on your face. Is that a big deal? No, why? They weren't ready. They're green. They're green fruit. And if they're green fruit, should you pull the fruit? No. no, because what happens if you pull green fruit? Well, it's not only bitter, it's going to rot. It's never going to ripen. 
You, you need to leave that baby on the tree. You're looking for ripe fruit. Pull the ripe fruit. Go to the next door. Eventually, you're going to come to the door of somebody that God is already working on their hearts, and they're ripe. Work on them, and then next month or, or six months from then, when you, when you do your next evangelistic series, guess what's going to happen to some of that green fruit? They're going to be ripe. And if you work it that way, you're never going to burn your, your, your territory. Never. Because God is always working. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. I believe this is a promise. When Jesus says the harvest is great, that's what he meant. In Genesis chapter 1, he created every day and he says it was what? Good. Do we question that? How many times have we ever questioned that? I'm not really sure if it was really good. Lord, was it, was it good? I mean, when you, called, when you called the sun out of existence, out of nothing, was that, was that really good? We, we don't question that at all because we know that it was good. And when he created it in the sixth, he created the sixth day. At the end of the sixth day, he said, and it was all what? Very good. And it was so good. It was all so good that on the seventh day, he said, let's have a celebration party because what I have created is so good. I'm going to immortalize that creation every single week with the Sabbath because everything that I made was very good. But we get to this and we're like, Oh, the harvest truly is great. Oh, you can't really be great in my community. I mean, we've, we've gone door to door. There's, there's nobody that's really interested. Come on now. If God says it's great, guess what? It's great. And it doesn't matter what community you live in. It doesn't matter what kind of people you have in there. If you have people and they have a heart, the voice of God can speak to that heart. And he is. And when Jesus says the harvest truly is great, that's exactly what he means. Wow, time is just ticking away. Let me talk about mission and vision just for a moment. Um, some years ago, I was introduced to Don Jernigan's uh, book. He was, uh, I believe he was one of the CEOs for Advent Health, and, and he wrote this book on, on uh, stewardship. And our, our manager at the time thought it was a good book. Uh, he, was, he was really into finances and leadership and stewardship and all this stuff. And so he gave it to all, uh, all of our department heads. And, and so I ended up having this book and read through it. And lo and behold, tucked in there, there was a little section on mission and vision. And as I read that, I thought, this is really, really good. And in short, here's what he says. Mission, mission is our purpose. Vision is how we complete the mission. So you have mission, this is, this is what we are, this is what we are supposed to be doing, and vision for him is how we accomplish that. Mission is fixed, he said, but vision flexes. So the mission never changes, but the vision, how we get it accomplished, that, that moves around based upon what we need to do in the communities that, that we need to do it in. Uh, each one of your communities are different. And you can't just attack each community the same way. There are some things that are specific to your community that you need to keep in mind. And then he said, a clear mission is a catalyst to, the, to a successful organization. I completely agree with this. You need to know exactly where you're going. One of the problems that we have in Adventism is we've forgotten who we are. Because we have forgotten who we are and, and where we came from, we have no idea where we're going. And so that's where all of the crazy stuff ends up coming into the church because we have totally forgotten what our base and foundation is. Now, Fernando Canali, Dr. Canali, came out with a book uh, shortly after that called Vision and Mission. And he, he says it a little different. I actually agree with, uh, with Dr. Canali, but he says vision is presupposition. Remember, for, for Jernigan, vision, vision is, is how you accomplish the mission. 
What Canali has done is he's gone one step beyond, one step back. Instead of talking about how to accomplish it or what it is, he's actually gone one step back to the foundation, the pillars, the presuppositions. And he says, vision is presupposition. Mission, he says, is the work that we have been called to do. So this is, this is what we've been asked to do. And, uh, but vision, instead of being how we accomplish it, for, for him, it's actually where you start from. It's the sight picture from where we begin. Mission is derived from the vision, he says, and the SDA theological vision is the sanctuary. I do not disagree with, with his perspective. However, they're, not in, they're actually not in tension. They're just using the words differently. Uh, there's some commonality uh, in, in the two. The foundation, it's fixed, it can't be altered, and can't be forgotten. They agree with that. The action, it's determined by the foundation. It's the work that needs to be done to fulfill the foundation. That's, uh, that's, that's all in agreement. Uh, even though I agree with, uh, with the way that Canali is using his definition, I want to use Jernigan's here for this example because it's very easy to understand. And I, and I want to use this one. So remember, mission is our purpose. This is why we're here. Vision is how we complete that mission. The mission is fixed. The vision flexes. How we complete the mission, is it flexes. And a clear mission is a catalyst to a successful organization. Based on this, I want to look at Ministry of Healing and that statement that we all know. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. Everybody familiar with that, right? We always, we always quote that as, as a, a favorite on, on how it is that we win the souls. It's divided into three sections. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. Part two, the Savior mingled with men. And part three, then he bade them follow me. All right, based upon Jernigan's definition that mission is fixed, mission is what we are supposed to do, and vision is, what we are, is how we accomplish that mission. So mission is fixed, it's what we're supposed to do. Vision is how we go about accomplishing that mission. Which one of these is mission and which one of these is vision? The top one is what? Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. That's just kind of a statement. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. Is that the mission? That's the vision, right? That's how he accomplished it. Then he bade them follow me. That's the mission. That's the mission. And see, here's the problem with evangelism. Here's the problem with soul winning. We have switched that. We have, we have thought that this part or at least we have acted like this part is the mission, and then this is the vision, or this is something. Maybe sometimes we just even leave that out. But we need to be really, really clear about this. This is why Jesus did the things that he did. In fact, this is why he died, so that he can take people home. This is the way that we, he got it accomplished, but this here is the mission. You see, vision can't be allowed to drive the mission. The mission has to, has to be set. Method cannot drive the purpose. We have so many issues in our church today because method is driving our purpose. We have a set purpose as Seventh-day Adventists. We know who we are. We know why we were put on this earth. That mission is fixed. From there, we ask the Lord, how would you have us work? 
And of course, he's given us scripture to, to help us through that as well. We'll talk a little bit more about Christ's method. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, it says, And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about what? My father's business. So Jesus said that he was to be about his father's business. What, what was his father's business? What was Jesus's business? Luke chapter 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. That's, that's what, what his purpose was. He was to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen to Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To preach the good tidings to the poor. This is, his, this is his mission. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison, uh, prison to those who are, who are bound. This is, this is what Jesus was here to do. Now, you remember John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has been thrown in jail. And while he's there, he, uh, he does sort of an Elijah thing. He just kind of starts getting uh, a bit depressed and... And, and he sends his disciples to go find Jesus. And he says to them, go, go find Jesus and ask Jesus if he is the one that we're waiting for, if he's the Messiah. Now, you know, mind you, he, he knows this already because he's the one that baptized him and, and he, he's, he's seen and he's heard all of these things. But in, in moments of, of weakness, sometimes we, we revert to, to our human side, and that's what's happening with John the Baptist. Go down there and talk to Jesus. Let, let, him, let him know that I'm here and, and ask, him, ask him if he's the one. And here's how Jesus answers. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, if we were to look, this, look at this and say, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna set up our evangelistic uh, mission based upon Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6, we may end up getting a little bit of a twisted uh, theology when it's all said and done. Because this, this is very, very heavy on, on sort of compassion ministry and community-oriented evangelism. It does have a preaching element in there as well, but it seems to be very, very heavy on the other. And so if we were to say, what is Christ's mission? How should we do evangelism in, the, in, in our community? Well, let's use Matthew 11, 4 through 6 as our model. And if we were to do that, we're going to run into problems. Because one of the things that we have to do when we're reading Scripture is we've got to read the entire thing. You've got to read the whole thing. So many problems that we've had, we have in religion today because we've picked a text that we like and we build a whole theology around that text. Read the entire thing. Read the whole chapter. Drop down to the end of this chapter and here's what you read. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they, they, they did not what? They repented not. Why was he doing all of those things? Why did he do all these miracles? Did he just do that to do it? Did he do it so that they would say, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you, I'm glad you made an did an amazing miracle. Is that why he did it? No, he did it so that they would what? They would repent. I mean, we, we've sort of, I know that Ellen White talks about uh, disinterested benevolence. I know that she talks about this, but I think that we have taken that disinterested benevolence and gone too far. Because when you read Scripture, you can't really even find that. There's, there's always something that Jesus is doing for a particular reason. He's always doing it for a reason. And the reason, He's trying to get people to repent. 
Woe unto thee, Chores, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have done what? Repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Friends, this is what we have been asked to do. We have been asked to go out, preach the everlasting gospel with power, with the intent to bring souls home. Because they're going to perish without this message. Back when I was in law enforcement, um, I was introduced to this statement from Ernest Hemingway. And it really applies well to, to law enforcement, but now I've applied it to, to ministry because I'm in an, a different type of law enforcement now. <laughs> you know, it was, <laughs> oh, this is terrible, I shouldn't tell you this. <laughs> when, when, I, when I first started pastoring, I had, I had a hard, hard time. I'd, I'd, been, I'd been doing undercover work for about six years and... And, and, you know, when you deal with the thugs of life, and this is all you ever deal with, you really get a bit of a jaded, uh, skewed perspective of life. And so I, I remember my first day look, uh, there at the church, looking out over the audience, thinking, all right, he's a thug, and he's a thug, and, and, he's, and it was just like, you know, before it was all, it was like 95% of the church members were all thugs. And it was, it, was so, it was so hard to get that out of my mind to change that, but... Anyway, I shouldn't have told you that. You guys are all fine. This is like heaven here. This is just absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, there is no hunting like the hunting of man. And those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter. Do you care for anything else? You know why our children leave the church today? It's because they haven't hunted for men. That's why. If we would quit playing around and giving them all this stuff that we think is going to keep them in the church and we give them a Bible and we teach them to preach and we put them out there winning souls and they're actually in the baptism watching and helping people be baptized and give their life to Jesus, I guarantee, because it's not me, it's God, guarantee that more young people will stay in the church today. Because once they taste the hunting of men when it comes to Scripture, they won't want to leave. It is so, so sweet. We've we got to quit playing around. God has called us to preach the everlasting gospel, friends. Let's do it. Let's get it done. All right, I've got 11 minutes and probably an hour's worth of slides. So I'm going to skip a lot probably, but I want to talk to you a little bit about evangelism and the cycle of evangelism. Um, some years ago, I remember, uh, I remember my, my first, my first uh, year in law enforcement, I was... I was one of these uh, police officers that you probably would, would hate. Um, I got out of police academy and they gave me a tool, uh, one major tool. You know what that tool was? Anybody have any idea what, what tool uh, police officers are really known well for? Radio, gun. No, it's called the TCA annotated. It's, it's the TCA code annotated. That's where the, that's where the, the road laws are. That's where, that, that's where I know that you've violated the laws of the road when you're driving. And they all gave, they, gave, they gave us, when we graduated, they all gave us two volumes of this. I went home with that tool and I memorized it. I knew that thing backward and forward. And for the first year, year and a half, I was horrible. I was, I was given tickets, I mean, I was, I was given 120 tickets a month. I was just, this, as soon as I got on, if I wasn't on a call, I was stopping a car. And I could literally stop you and you would walk away with six tickets. It was, I had it memorized. I was like a highway patrol guy. I, I, I knew what the mud flaps were supposed to, I knew, I knew how, how high your bumper needed to be. I, I just, I, I knew all the laws. 
And I remember sitting around one day talking to my sergeant, and we were talking about law enforcement. We were talking about what, what law enforcement is and isn't. And he said to me, he says, you know, you've got a lot of energy and you've got, you've, you know your stuff really, really well, but you don't yet know law enforcement. And I said, really? And he says, all you really know is the TCA code annotated. That's what you know. You've embraced that and you do that really, really, really well. But law enforcement is so much more. And the longer you're here, you'll find that out. Eventually, you'll become balanced. And I was. By the time I left the road work, um, I was a totally different, different man because I realized that law enforcement was not just given tickets. It was, it was so much broader than this. There was, there was a holistic perspective to law enforcement. Evangelism is the very same way. Paul talks about the church being, being the body. A leg, an arm, an eye, uh, an ear, a, a finger. Can you imagine if we were all just one leg? I mean, how far could we get? God has placed all of this together, and, and, and we, we, uh, we look at the diversity in the church, and we think, oh, man, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Because as we bring all of that diversity together, then we become a total package. We become the church of God. And that's where we're powerful. Evangelism is the same thing. When you hear people say evangelism doesn't work, what they believe evangelism is, they are absolutely right. It doesn't work. And it never did because evangelism never was that. Most people believe that evangelism is an evangelistic meeting. You, you, you either preach it or you bring in some high-powered speaker that, that uh, can be well-known or speaks well. You put handbills out there and you have a meeting for 30 days and, and then what you get is what you get. You baptize them and now you have done evangelism. Hey, listen, if that's all you're going to do, don't do it. Well... That's probably extreme. Do it. Just, if, just do it. Just preach. But evangelism is so much more than that. It's a, it's a holistic concept. It involves so many different things. Here's an evangelism cycle that we have put together to, to sort of demonstrate or to sort of explain the parts of evangelism. When I first put this together, I was actually missing the center. And for a couple of months, I was just kind of missing the center, and, I, and, and it was a donut. And I had actually put evangelism cycle in text here. And every, every day at, at the office, I'd look at it and say, there's just, there's just something missing about this. There's, there's something mi And finally, it hit me. There's no prayer. It's, it's, all, it's all useless without prayer. I mean, it's all powered by prayer. And so we, we, we took the text out and we placed that right in there. And, and, and I love the way it ended up because it's touching every single part of it. That's where you start. You start with, with prayer. And from there, you get into cultivating, preparing in Christ, and sowing, encountering Christ, irrigating, discovering Christ, harvest, decision for Christ, and perpetuate, growing in Christ. Let me just share a few things. Uh, Matthew 13, 3 through 8. Behold, a sower went out to sow, because this is not new. The evangelism cycle is not new. Some seed fell by the wayside, some fell on stony places. Some fell among others, but others fell on good ground. What did you notice about this text here on where he sowed? He sowed everywhere. He was unbiased. He sowed everywhere. We have been called to sow unbiasedly. We are to take the gospel everywhere. It doesn't matter what your community looks like. It doesn't matter if you don't think they're going to listen. It doesn't matter if there are young people there. It doesn't matter if they're prisoners. It doesn't matter. God has called us to preach. Preach the gospel everywhere. We sow everywhere. 
1 Corinthians 12, 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We need to bring everybody together. This is our authority. Mark 4, 28, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. There's a systematic way to win souls. It's not just kind of tossed out there. It's, it's a systematic, programmatic way to do evangelism. And we have to learn that way. All the time, you, you hear it all the time. Evangelism doesn't work because we're not intentional, because we haven't been programmatic. There is a way, and there is, there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. In Luke chapter 11, 42, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. There are so many other things that we've got to do in evangelism. And we've got to bring it all together in one total package. So let's start with prayer. First thing is, is prayer. The center of everything that you do is prayer. And I don't know how far I'm going to get, but let me, let me just try. One of the things that, uh, that we talked about just a couple of days ago is, is your house a house of prayer? Have you gotten your elders together? Have you gotten your board together and your church together and said, God said, my house shall be a house of prayer. What does a house of prayer look like for our church? That is your starting point. You want to have success in evangelism. You want to grow your church. You want, you want to, to, to evangelize the community. It must start with deciding what a house of prayer looks like and then taking intentional steps to become a house of prayer. Intentionality is the key. You're not going to be able to do anything without intentionality because everything will fall through the, through the cracks. So number one, prayer. Prayer's got to be everything. And if I had time, I'd talk to you about different prayer elements that you could do, things that you can, you can implement in your church. If you, if you want to catch me later on, we can talk a little bit about that. We're going to skip the verses here because we just don't have time. I won't be able to finish. Number two is cultivating. This is preparing in Christ. This is bringing everything together. How, how do you prepare the people? How do you prepare the church? The last two seminars that I'll, I'll speak on on Thursday and Friday will be all about preparing the people and preparing the church. How do we prepare the church for new members to come. You've got, you start, start thinking through all of these things, all, materials and, and, and cultivating the, the, the field out there in your community. What are you doing to cultivate the field? What are you doing to get your community ready for what you're about to do? All of this has to, go, has to come into this, into this particular element. And then we go to sowing, encountering Christ. What is sowing? Sowing is all of those contact things that you do in the community. Whether you're doing Bible studies, whether you're doing uh, community-oriented evangelism, where, whether you're just meeting people in the community, that all falls under sowing. You're getting out there in the community, you're meeting people, you're doing stuff. I talk to people and, and they tell me that they're going to do evangelism. I'm, I'm like, great. What did you do before, before the evangelistic meeting? What, what stuff did you have in, in order to go, go preach? Did you have any, any kind of events? Did you, did you do anything? Oh, no, 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 pastor. We didn't really do anything. We just uh, we got some good sermons and we're going to preach those. You're not going to have success. Your evangelistic meeting is not going to be successful because pre-work is the key to success. You should know everybody you're going to baptize before you have opening night. We do an evangelistic, well, I'll tell you why we do an evangelistic series in just a minute, but you should already know who, who's going to be baptized. How? Because you've been working with them for the last year. You've met them down in, in, in the community. You've invited them. You've prayed for them. You've been doing Bible studies with them, and the evangelistic meeting ends up just being a celebration. Anything that God gives you on top of that is just icing on the cake. Then irrigate. This is a little different than, um, than what, what most of you are, are, are probably used to. 
This is actually where the evangelistic meeting goes. It's in the irrigate phase. Uh, most people would probably say evangelism or the evangelistic meeting is in the harvesting phase. It's really not in the harvesting phase. It's in the irrigate phase. Because if you'll notice, most people are not making decisions these days in your evangelistic meeting. They're making decisions after your evangelistic meeting. This is where you do evangelism. And really, evangelism only does one thing really, really well. How many things? One thing. It only does one thing really, really, really well. It's like having a screwdriver. It does one thing really, 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 really well. And if you try to do other things with that, it's not going to work. What does it do? It's, it's really simple. You've been doing your pre-work. You've been working with folks. You've been doing Bible studies with them. Let's say that you're doing the Discover lessons. It's 26 lessons long. By the time they get to lesson 16, they have forgotten what's in lesson 3. So what does the evangelistic meeting does, do? It just brings it all together into one package, one portrait, one picture in a short period of time. So that when they see it, they're like, oh, that's what it was all about. That's what it all meant. That's what the evangelistic meeting does. It just brings it all together in one place. And then from there, they have to make a decision. And that's the harvest. This is the post work. This is what we told the, the folks in, in Calgary, the 18 churches we were working with. I said, guys, the work is just beginning. We just painted the portrait in 30 days. They see the picture. Their eyes are huge. They love what they see. They're telling us we've never heard anything like this before. Now is where you actually start working. Now you have to have your follow-up. All of them are doing Bible marking classes in order to follow, follow it up. And they're, they're, they're doing fantastic work down there. But this is where people make their decisions. They'll make their decisions in the next couple of weeks. They'll make their decision two months from now. They'll make their decisions two years from now. Back in, um, I think it was 2017, we ended up doing some meetings in Denver. And uh, 2017, 2018, I can't remember. But just this year, five years later, somebody that went through the meetings is finally making their decision. That's the way it works. Some people do it quickly. Some people take, it takes a little longer. And then after that, you have the last one, which is perpetuate, growing in Christ. And, and what is this one all about? Well, this one is about discipleship. It's about turning them into disciples of Jesus and putting them out in the field and working them. Your best evangelists are those that are coming to the meetings. In Calgary, Canada, we, we didn't really even have to do a whole lot of promotion. We had guests, interest that would come, and second, second night, they would, we had some leftover handbills. They would take like packs of 100 of these handbills. We had one guy that took 100 handbills and took it over to his church. It was a mega church. Passed out all 100 in, the, in that mega church. And we had all kinds of people from that church. There were tons of folks from that church. They were, they were the ones that were selling it. There was a lady that came up to me one day and she said, she said, listen, pastor, we are stubborn here in Canada. We're just stubborn. We are... We are socialists and we don't want to get out of our seats. Here's what you need to do. Billy Graham, she, and she, this is an interest. She said, Billy Graham used to make a three-part appeal. He would work the, the, the bleachers first. And then he'd come and he'd work the floor. And he worked that really, really well. And then he'd go back to the bleachers. And, and pastor, that's what you need to do when you make your appeal. If you'll work the bleachers and you'll work the floor and then you'll go back to work the bleachers because all we need is one person. If one person will come forward, then they all will come. This is an interest. 
I've never seen anything like this, by the way. Somebody would come up front and make it an appeal and somebody would stand up and come forward and everybody in the audience would start clapping. I, you can't tell me that, that it's not ripe. This is the best time we've ever, we've ever had to do evangelism. God's working in, in, in amazing, amazing ways. Let, let, me, let me finish this up. Um, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. This is, a, this is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How many nations? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is what God has asked us to do. There is nothing else He's asked us to do. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Are you alone on this? God had promised. This is what the uh, evangelistic cycle looked like for Calgary. Um, and it's got tons of stuff. It is just loaded from health programs to you name it. We had, we had a health uh, thing going on here. We have a grief seminar. We have a marriage seminar uh, happening. We, ha we just had all kinds of stuff. This is what yours looks like right now, maybe. All we have to do is sit down and plug it in. Let's plan it. Why not plan it? Why not start now? Why not say, you know, we, don't, we, we know that 2024 and 2025 are coming, right? Because it's not like the world is just going to stop. Time is going to continue. And if Jesus hasn't come back, then we're going to have to work in those years. So let's be intentional about this and let's plan what we're going to do. And then we execute. God's going to bless whatever it is that we do through the power of God. Listen to the voice of God, plug these in, and let's just do work for Jesus. And if you have some questions on this and want to see us, you've got Tanisha, she, she, she's here, she finally came in. Is she in the room right now? Uh, she's not, she she's, uh, has appointments. But if you want to see, uh, see us and, and talk with Tanisha, talk to her about this, talk about the evangelistic meeting in the fall, go, uh, go find her, sign up, and, and we'll sit down with you and talk. Let me pray with you. Father, Lord, you have promised You've promised that the harvest truly is great, and we believe you. And now what I'm asking today is that you give us courage, Lord, that we will stand up from here and we'll say there's nothing that's going to keep us from doing the work. And help us to do that holistically. Help us to do the entire process, Lord, because that's where you, you have and bring the greatest success. Continue to bless this camp meeting, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.